Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 137. So glad you could join me. Today's guest is Kim Stafford. He'll be here in just a little bit. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been a continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know you do too, so please do click the like button and share. Make sure you're subscribed. Anything you can do to help spread poetry around the internet really helps. So click that like button right now. Um, you know, subscribe, uh, click the bell for notifications, all the stuff like that. If you're, you're on iTunes later, leave a review. Um, anything you can do to help, please do. Now, um, as we like to do, we're going to start today with uh, today's Sunday poet, the poetry spawn poet Francesca Bell. And uh, here's Francesca right now. Hey, Francesca, how you doing? Hey, Tim. I'm great, thanks. How are you? I'm great. It's good to see you. I haven't seen you since before the pandemic, I think. Um, so how, I know. How, how's really it been treating really you? <laughs> I've been fully retracted into being a hermit. Yeah, but you have two <laughs> books, I heard, coming out next year. So we're looking forward to those. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I'm excited. One is um, a collection of my own poems, and the other is a new and selected collection of poems I translated from German uh, by the poet Max Sessner. Yeah, very cool. We published one of those a couple of years ago, too. Um, yeah. So this poem, we've, we finally get a, a bit of a break from poems about Ukraine in Poetry Spawn this week. And uh, we have your poem, Sandwiches. Do you want to explain uh, what inspired the poem and, and how it came to be? Uh, so I read an article on it was on my phone and i was reading about um the first four signs that someone has uh, is developing alzheimer's and there are four things that you can watch for that a person might start to miss and and i i read the article and later i thought you know i should really jot those things down and keep a, an eye out um for those in my own in my own failings and i couldn't remember even one um <laughs> And then I couldn't remember where I read the article. I couldn't remember the name of the article. <laughs> and, and so then it, everything just sort of devolved from there. Um, I did eventually find the article. And, um, and I have committed the four things to memory now. <laughs> yeah. uh, so you, can, you can forget um, words, names, stories, and that you have said things to people before. So you can start to repeat yourself. And those are the warning signs? Yeah, those are, I mean, supposedly, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it was probably a clickbait article, but those are, those are four kind of early symptoms um, of Alzheimer's, but they also are early symptoms of aging normally, I think, so. Well, I think, I mean, we always kind of joke about it, but I have the worst memory ever. I have my whole life, and, and so I, always, I already do all of that stuff, and I have, like, when I was in, in even in high school, I remember, I, sometimes I couldn't remember what class I had next, and I would have to ask my friend Tom if he ever watches. Um, I'd say, Tom, what you know, what class do I have next? And he'd have to tell me. And then I'd go. And so, so we always say, like, you know, that's going to be my future. But maybe I'm just used to it, so I, it won't be as distressing as it is for other people because that's just the way I always am. But uh, well, and you may not progress um, in, any further along that road. You never know. Yeah, you just don't. Yeah, and it's such an important topic too because. You know, as as people get older, we have this whole sort of population bomb set up where, where so many people are going to be, you know, we're extending life past yeah. the age our brains last almost now. And so there's a lot of, um, there's a lot to that. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, we're going to be the blind leading the blind soon. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, well, do you want to go ahead and read this, uh, Sandwiches? 
Okay, thank you. Sandwiches. I decide it would be a good idea to write them down, the first four things you're likely to forget on your journey down dementia's long path, a path that will eventually be strewn with all your discarded memories, the way the path to the person dead from hypothermia is strewn with their cast off articles of clothing that lie bright and useless on the snow. But I can't remember them, the four things, or the article's title. I'm pretty sure there are four things, but four is my lucky number, and maybe I've merely glommed on to what is familiar, the way a person who's wandered off course might walk in whatever wrong direction most resembles home. I try searching my phone where I read the piece, but it turns out I can't find the way to my phone's memory either. And when I Google four things you may forget and signs of dementia, several lists of 10 items appear. And 10 is at least six too many to keep track of. So I don't bother writing any of it down. For some reason, this reminds me of the story I told last night at dinner, a story I meant to take note of. But first, I think since I'm constructing records, I should finally make that list of all the men I've slept with. So I do, but I reach early on one name I simply cannot summon. The name of the guy who took me to the snow for a whole day and only brought one sandwich, which turned out to be just what sleeping with him was like, a trip to the cold with only half a sandwich to hold you. I write sandwiches where his name should be and go on. But when I reach the end of the list, my lifetime total is five under what I thought I tallied years ago, meaning five additional names and the men they belong to may or may not have leapt from memory's cliff. Frustrated, I turn the page to write the story I told at last night's dinner, a story I might in fact have told my family before, now I think of it, and find that it too has vanished along with those men I now can neither remember nor forget. Men who may have entered my body without leaving so much as a trace on my mind. Perhaps it will return to me later, the story. Maybe even the men will wander back across my blinkered brain, naked, with or without sandwiches. Maybe a little snow falling outside the window, their penises memorable this time, overpowering enough that my mind will finally have something solid to hold on to. But I don't really think so. I don't think I'll find the way to those memories again or to the article about the four early losses of dementia, one more list of losses, too many losses to possibly keep count of. There is a name for this precise feeling, I know there is, this feeling that wells and wells and almost spills over. Like a Scot with snow, I'm a poet with hundreds of different ways to name sorrow. But though I sit for a long time as dusk seeps in, I'm only ever able to put my finger on one. Yeah, beautiful poem. Thanks so much for sharing that, Francesca. And uh, and that was sandwiches, of course. And um, 
before I let you go, um, let me ask about about how you come up with metaphors. Just because um, you know that poem has a couple great ones in it. The the hypothermia one at the beginning, um, and you were the Neil Postman Award for Metaphor winner um, several years ago. Um, how does it? How does that work in your brain? Like, do poems? Does the process of writing generate the metaphor, or does? Um, or, or do you think of the metaphor first and that becomes why you're writing the poem? How, how does the process of metaphor come to be for you? Um, usually I get tangled up in a metaphor first and it'll be, um, I'll be, you know, innocently leading my life and a metaphor will come and grab me by the throat and that becomes a poem. Uh, this poem was really different. Um, I haven't been writing much for the last two years and I was just writing in my journal and and these, I don't know, this time the metaphors seem to have a life of their own. Um, I don't know where they came from. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess well, if, I guess if we knew where they came from, God, we could bottle that shit and we could sell it. <laughs> I know. It's just the the magic of um of creativity or something. It's just what makes you know, what makes us all come back to poetry forever. So thanks for Thanks for joining us and for sharing this poem, which is both both funny and, and moving and important and uh, just a great poem. So it's great to have you back writing and publishing again after a little, a little hiatus. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Francesca. Thank you. Okay, so we are going to take a quick break and be right back with our main guest, uh, Tim Stafford. So uh, hang on just a moment, and I will be right back. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. As I mentioned, Kim Stafford is today's guest. Kim is a writer and teacher in Oregon and founding director of Northwest Writing Institute at Lewis and Clark College. His poetry titles include A Gypsy's History of the World and Wild Honey Tough Salt. He has published uh, a biography, Early Morning, Remembering My Father, William Stafford. We Got Here Together, a children's book from Harcourt Brace, and a book about writing and teaching, The Muses Among Us, Eloquent Listening and Other Pleasures of the Writer's Craft. His books have received um, Pacific Northwest Booksellers Awards and a citation for excellence from the Western States Book Award. He co-founded the annual Fish Trap Writers Gathering in Oregon and teaches regularly at the Richard Hugo House in Seattle. Kim's most recent book is Singer Come From Afar from Red Hen Press, which we have right here, along with a few other self-published books that we'll talk about. Um, Here he is, Kim Stafford. Hey, Kim, how you doing? Hey, Tim. Thanks so much for having me on your wonderful show. I love what you do. Yeah, it's my pleasure to have you. I mean, I, um, you know, I resonate so much like having having sort of I mean, I I was familiar with your poems, but didn't really know, you know, what you're into and all the different areas and (laughs) angles and the ways you do things. And I'm I'm fascinated by all of it. So I have a lot of um, feelings of resonance with what you're doing. So it's really great to have you on. Um, Before we talk about like all that stuff, though, do you want to start out with a poem? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, let me read the one I wrote this morning. <laughs> you know, I'm on a, a pattern. Um, every morning I meditate with people around the world on Zoom, including some people in Ukraine. And so Ukraine is very much on my mind. And uh, I, I read about the village near Chernobyl where uh, yesterday the people gathered and sang and chanted, go home to the occupying soldiers and uh, I just thought that was a wonderful response to war to go unarmed and sing so it's called protest if you take to the streets with guns they know what to do with you 
Bullets are cheap, and with a few shovel strokes, you disappear. If you hold up a sign, maybe they can detain you, but feel a bit ridiculous after all. Are they really afraid of a few words? If you gather to sing, to chant, go home, to stand under the sky in spite of shots fired toward heaven, you have won the day. They want to go home. They don't want to be the ones shooting. They want to be singing. So I think that typifies at least my recent practice, Tim, of their, uh, it's, it's poets respond, <laughs> is uh, Rattle's genius, but also my, my habit. Uh, you know, there's a prompt in the world, not always in the news. It may be in my backyard. It may be on my walk. It may be something I overhear. Like, uh, I think tomorrow I'm going to write about um, a phrase that came from our conversation with Francesca just now. Oh, really? Uh, the blind leading the blind. Mm -hmm. That is such an interesting idea. And uh, I think it touches on what happens with poetry. You know, the, uh, the poem kind of knows what it wants to do, and I kind of know what I want it to do, but uh, we're leading each other, we're groping. Uh, I'm not sure what will happen to that phrase in the poem, but it's a prompt. Yeah, so um, so so writing a poem a day, which you've been doing, I think you said when you we were a brief guest a couple of weeks ago that you've been doing it for like 10 years or so. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... so um, do you usually come up with an idea ahead of time like that and then and then write in the morning? Sometimes. Uh, <laughs> you know, it happens all kinds of ways. Uh, frequently, I sit down, uh, you know, before dawn, and there's nothing. I, I can't think of a thing. You know, I, I, I look through my little notebook. Maybe there's a hint there. I cast my mind back. But eventually, if you sit... <laughs> Uh, blind, you know, receptive, there's something. And is that worth anything? Well, let's find out. You know, let's see where that goes. But the other way it happens, Tim, is, um, yeah, I th the day before, you know, like tomorrow, I'll be ready, blind leading the blind, I'll have that. Um, sometimes lately, it's in the middle of the night, I wake up with a phrase, and you know, this sounds very mystical, but I think it's just something that happens in the mind, you know, and, and then when I sit down, well, what is that? You know, what what is that trying to invite me to explore? Sometimes on my walk, I, I walk before I write, so I'm out in the dark streets and, you know, again, <laughs> something will come to mind. Do you, do you find that it, that it frees you up knowing that you're writing a poem every day? Like that, that you can sort of have more room to not make it good and just explore? Because that seems like one of the main <laughs> things that would help yeah. with. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, you talk about these little uh, books I've been making. Uh, I made one called December's Children, and it was just a poem a day for the month of December several years ago. And I sent the classroom set of these little books off to a friend in Louisiana. And he just got like a priceless response from one of his students. Uh, he said, yeah, I read through that book. They're not all good. <laughs> I thought, well, of course they're not all good. 
you know, but they're all worth trying. Uh, you know, my someone asked my dad, uh, what's your favorite poem you ever wrote? And he said, I love all my children. Hmm. But <laughs> this is the key. But I would trade everything I've ever written for the next thing. Hmm. You know, so for me, that writing a poem a day is, uh, you know, the good things ahead. Maybe the best is yet to come. That's a nice feeling when you're 72. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so speaking of your dad, William uh, Stafford, not many, there aren't many, um, you know, parent-child um, poet, you know, the, the whole, that whole generational theory thing, um, has yeah. all the whole, that whole theory is about how, um, you know, the child rebels against the parent. And then since you're, you know, and then you're rebelling against that rebellion. So you end up kind of yeah. like your grandparents. <laughs> and so, um, so it's rare. I mean, like James Wright and, and you, um, yeah. there aren't that many. Um, <clears throat> so, so what was it that, that drew you to poetry, even though your dad was already a famous poet? Uh, well, I actually, my form of resistance, Tim, was to, uh, when he was alive, primarily write essays. Uh, you know, he uh, his poems are, uh, as he would say, trenchant, short, uh, uh, plain spoken. And my essays that I wrote in those days are, are long and lyrical and uh, over the top. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a reviewer said of my book of essays, Having Everything Right, uh, after reading Kim Stafford, most prose is bland as tofu. <laughs> you know, well, I'm not sure that's a compliment. <laughs> I was the uh, the expert on the first person rhapsodic. Uh, but after he died, uh, you know, one thing I realized, life got so busy, I was trying to do my life and be his literary executor. You know, he he's published 15 books since he died. Wow. <laughs> he's been a very busy guy. And poems fit in a finite writing time for a daily practice. Mm -hmm. So I circled back to poetry. Yeah. Um, well, let's hear another one. Um, and, and just a reminder, because I forgot to remind you, but show, tell me the page number. Um, I have these yeah. three little books uh, and then This the is new the, one. First, uh, the first poem in uh, Singer Come From Afar. It's on page 15. Uh, and I'll just say this is an example, Tim, of um, how a poem comes from a phrase often. Uh, it was several summers ago. I was out. Uh, so troubled by the state of the world, I can't remember what the immediate conditions were, but uh, it's sort of unrelenting. And I just had to go pick blueberries. You know, it was July, I had to go out to the blueberry patch. And and it's a place where a lot of immigrants come, a lot of families. And so there's kind of this lovely sound of, there was some Russian, there was some German, there was some Latvian, you know, people, a lot of kids getting all they want. Everybody's in a great mood. And uh, I noticed that because I'm older, I was doing the easy picking, you know, up at the top of the bushes. You're supposed to crouch down and, you know, pick the bushes clean. But but this phrase, easy pickings, came to me. So, so the poem is called Easy Pickings. The children went first. Uh, uh, no, 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 sorry, the wrong poem. <laughs> we'll get to Easy Pickings. Uh, no, here's Easy Pickings. It's on page 124, Tim. Okay. Sorry. No problem. I was going to read that other one, too. We'll get to that. Okay. So easy picking. So I'm out in the blueberry field. And, you know, I start just by recording what's happening. That's, uh, that's the easy way to start a poem. Easy pickings. It's easy to laugh 
in the blueberry field. Staccato, plink, and plunk as berries plummet into the pail. And you hear children banter in a dozen languages among the green rows. It's easy to forgive, too, viewing old betrayals sweetly diminished by the honeyed crush of berries on your tongue. It's even possible to imagine peace between people who hated each other before their children met between these rows and asked one another, Shall we pick together? Come pick with me, my enemy, my angry self. Come split couple bickering over money. Come to the blueberry field, Palestine and Israel. Come bow and squint under the sun-splashed leaves. Come peer into these dark shadows for blue. And that was easy pickings from uh, from Singer Come Afar, uh, Kim Stafford's newest book from Red Hen Press. Um, and it's it's an interesting book in the in the structure. Um, a lot of times uh, people have said um, to me lately, like, why can't a collection of poems uh, just be poems? <laughs> like everything is so thematic, <laughs> and um, and and this book of poems has has five sections that are grouped by theme. Um, but the themes kind of fit together. Um, th- there's, a, there's a sort of a central metaphor about what poetry is, I would say, to the poems. Yeah. And, and the, the, yeah. the, that that singer come af- from afar is what a poem does. Like it sings sort of meaning into your life from afar. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, it's, it's sort of a collection of, of poems that have different, different subject matter. Um, and and so, so how did the book come to be? Like, why did you choose these poems for this book? And uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, I can't remember if I mentioned this last time we spoke, Tim, but uh, I had the honor of being Oregon Poet Laureate for a couple of years, 2018 to 2020, uh, before things got pinched off with the pandemic. And my predecessor uh, in this post, Elizabeth Woody, who's a Navajo Wasco poet, she said something in a reading uh, at the end of her tenure as Poet Laureate. She said, you know, the more I do poetry, the less it's about what the poem is and the more about who the poem serves. Uh, That really struck me. That became my mission as Poet Laureate. And I think since, uh, you know, so when I'm writing, who might this poem serve? Uh, you know, like the, today we're having uh, my daughter's 40th birthday party. So I wrote a poem for her. You know, that that's what you do. So uh, as Poet Laureate, I'd travel around and I'd write poems for the inmates at Two Rivers Prison, uh, for Claudia Castro Luna, the Poet Laureate of Washington State, uh, for my mother, uh, dear departed, uh, for my wife. You know, this... Uh, it's sort of a maybe the corollary, Tim, to where does the poem start? Well, where is it going? It's for someone. Um, I think we've all been to poetry readings where it's as if the poet is holding the poem up like a jeweled artifact before us and turning it over, and we're all you know in wonder at its beauties. But for me, poetry is transactional. Mm-hmm. You know, I want it to disappear and for its effect to pierce the heart of the reader or the listener, to to connect us. So in answer to your question, I think each of these clusters is 
you know, for peace, for earth, for family. And the poems, you know, once I had that overarching theme, it was what they were about. You know, well, this one references family. This this one references earth. This one references uh, the pandemic. Uh, mm -hmm. So they fell into those clusters. And, and in the afterword at the end, you talk about um, Donald Justice's distinction, which I'd never heard before, actually, between uh, great poems and important poems, if I, have that, if I remember that right. Um, yeah, it was actually Donald Hall. Oh, it was Donald uh, Hall. He, okay. he has an essay, uh, you know, in which the question uh, comes up, why write poems if you can't write great ones? Hmm. And uh, I really, that stuck in my craw. <laughs> <laughs> Because maybe because I'm a teacher and I've experienced people, you know, whether the poem turns out to be a great one, it's an important poem. Hmm. It's an important poem for the writer and for some readers. I, I tell my students, if you write a poem for someone, they won't analyze it. They won't correct your grammar. They will say thank you. <laughs> That's the impulse for me. Yeah, we were talking about that, uh, I think with Jack Riddle at some point, um, about about how, you know, poems, you know, even if they're not great for somebody else, they're still they're still really meaningful and important for the person yeah. who wrote them or the person they're written for. And yeah. and striving for for having some kind of like flawless MFA type poem where every <laughs> you know, it'll be published in some fancy poetry magazine isn't really like we set that up as if that's the goal. Um, yeah. For some reason, like like we don't we don't use poetry as like the tool that it is, and and the sort yeah. of universal. I mean, it goes back all the way to, you know, the oral tradition through our evolutionary biology, what a yeah. poem is and does, and and the yeah. functions that it serves a, a human being, and it's not um you know to get uh, a list of publications on your CV, um so, so I don't know so so how do you how do you how do you think about that as you're writing a poem? Because um, yeah. you want a poem to be great at the same time, don't you? I sure, mean, sure. So, so how do you how do you get through those two things simultaneously? Well, to, for me, there's a distinction. Um, I want the poem to be famous. Hmm. I don't want to be famous. Fame is a terrible distraction from living a life. But the poem, if it could travel under its own steam, if it could be hand, you know, travel hand to hand. And I had a, 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 a an epiphany about this, Tim. Uh, several years ago, AWP was in Portland and, you know, my hometown. So I went and, you know, one, there's a lot of wonderful things going on. I went to a session on poetry on Instagram. And the people on the panel said, uh, now be sure not to, post an unpublished poem on Instagram. You know, Rattle is not like this. I really honor you. Hey, it was on Instagram. It was online. Great. Let's put it in the magazine. But they were explaining, no, save your, your best new work for publication in magazines. And I thought, now let me get this straight. So if I have a poem that's really working, should I send it off and have it be rejected over a series of several years by prestigious magazines and then finally be published and maybe be read by 50 people? I don't know. Or should I put it on Instagram today mm -hmm. and uh, it'll be read by 60 people, 100 people? Uh, and so th that was a sort of a flip-flop for me that uh, poetry is not uh, a bullet point in my resume. It's it's something I make because I love people. I love connection. I love kinship. And I want to save the world. <laughs> I want to have my raindrop 
in the storm of change. Mm, a raindrop in the storm of change. That's great. And uh, yeah, I always think that it's almost like we're hung up on the word published. You know, I mean, yeah. like like when you know, published <laughs> means to make public. And there were only a, yeah. few, a few ways you could make something public. Yeah. And now that we have the internet, there are a million different ways. And, and yeah. but, but even copyright law doesn't fit with that definition of publication because, yeah. you know, you, when you create something, at least in the United States, that's the Copyright Act of 1990, or 1976, like you, you automatically own the copyright and then yeah. you slice it up into different parts. And yeah. so like a social media aspect is totally different from a print serial, which is totally different from an online serial, which is totally different from a book. And, uh, and we're sort of fixated on this idea that publication is the thing when we could be doing so much more. I think it's such a detriment. Yeah. We're sort of caught in this like trap of our own vocabulary. Yeah. Well, you know, in my experience, poetry kind of gets a pass. Tim, because uh, there's not a lot of money involved. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm the literary executor for my dad, so I get, you know, hundreds of permission requests, and it's touching the range. You know, it might be Houghton Mifflin wants to publish 20,000 copies of a textbook. Well, they're going to pay. You know, they should pay. Uh, someone will write me and say, I want to read one of your dad's poems at my wedding. Is that okay? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, for that one request, there are probably hundreds of people who are carrying poetry into the world unencumbered by profit motive. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I want to live in the gift economy that Lewis Hyde talks about in his book, The Gift, uh, because poems come to you not because you pay for them, except by experience and suffering. <laughs> and you want to, you know, impulses to, they should move freely beyond you. So yeah, there's copyright law, and then there's the impulse of generosity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, just one of the, the great things about poetry is that there's not a lot of economic forces, and, and it's, it's just yeah. one of the most free things we can do. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's one of the last bastions of freedom in a sea of consumerism. That, that's what I said to, uh, when I was Poet Laureate, I, when I talked to students, I'd say, you know, the three really cool things about poetry, that one is you can't make money doing it. And, and what that means is you are free. Mm -hmm. And the other is, uh, another one is, a lot of times people don't really understand poetry or, or how it works. Some people like this one, some people like that one. Again, you are free, you know, to do it your own way. And the third thing I would say is poetry, you know, you can, you could live without poetry, but poetry could save your life. Mm -hmm. You know, there's that strange corollary. Um, a friend of mine here in Portland, Gary Miranda, says, those who don't read or write poetry are spared the inconvenience of thought. <laughs> and I love that. I don't want to be spared. You know, poetry is a way to uh, help yourself and others think. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I want to keep the poems coming, so let's do another yeah. poem. Okay, I'll, I'll do the one now on, on page 15. Okay. And again, um, you know, this was one, Tim, that in the middle of the night, it's called the White Flag Patriots, in the middle of the night, you know, I, uh, Donald Hall, to reference him again, he said one time, um, one thing a poet needs is frequent short naps, you know, to be in and out of that liminal space between conscious and unconscious. And often, uh, as I'm falling asleep or in the middle of the night, I wake up and I'm, I'm at that threshold in that doorway and a phrase will come. So this phrase, white flag patriots came. And then my job when I sat down in the morning was to try to figure out what 
Well, who would those people be? Who would the white flag patriots be? So white flag patriots. The children went first because they had the most to lose. No color, no emblem on their flags. No shouting. Surrendering instead as they shuffled toward the White House. Some crying, some stern. A few humming lullabies their mothers had taught them. In the rose garden where men babbled into microphones, the children lay down in the grass to watch clouds drift west until speeches trailed off and only the wind was heard. Then white flags flashed as the children rose and sang together, you have overcome, but we are not afraid. That is white flag patriots again from singer come from afar. It's kind of haunting to have that uh, civil rights anthem come in at the end. Uh, you know, I often think of the Maasai greeting in Africa, I'm told, is, how are the children? Mm. You know, that's how you say hello, because if the children are well, everything's basically okay. Mm. But if the answer is the children are afraid, or the children are hurt, or the children are sick, then that reframes everything that we need to do. And I, I find, uh, you know, writing about Ukraine, uh, uh, the children are, are the key to what's the best future for everyone. Um, if anybody has any questions for, for Kim, um, just leave them in the chat window, and I will uh, pass them along. There's already one here from David Cook early on. It says, Kim, can you talk about your In a Landscape readings, like what you did in the <laughs> Elvore Desert? And Tim, you'll love this idea. I have no idea what he's talking about, so I'm curious. I want to make oh, sure I got so that. Oh, this is so cool. So so when I became poet laureate, my wise wife, Perrin, said, hey, there's this guy who puts a Steinway Grand on a flatbed trailer and goes out in the desert and performs uh, classical music in the wild. Uh, his name is Hunter Nowak, and his program is called In a Landscape, all one word, uh, a reference to a John Cage idea. Uh, you can find that in a landscape.com or .org. Um, so my wife said, you better call him up and say, hey, how about between uh, selections on the piano if I read a poem or two? And Hunter said, great, let's do it. He, you know, he invites musicians and others to come. So the uh, one of the early ones was in the Alvord Desert, which is in extreme Southeast Oregon, uh, miles from any town, out on the playa. Some members of the audience landed their small planes on the playa and they slept in tents. And they had to make a big windbreak of giant bales of hay to soften the wind a little bit. And then Hunter played, uh, you know, Tchaikovsky and uh, Liszt and Schubert. <laughs> and uh, between numbers, I and uh, someone else I invited read poems. And I thought that, you know, we were talking to him about... Do you want your poem in a literary magazine or or do you want it uh, declaimed in the desert to uh, uh, 200 people <laughs> accompanied by music, you know? Given the choice, I'll go that direction. Yeah, I mean, that's fascinating. So how did people um, gather? Like how many people came out for, for a reading like that? that a couple hundred people and yeah. they had to drive hundreds of miles, you know, but he does it at, at wineries, at museums, at... Uh, uh, Indian reservations, uh, or just 
out in the out in the boonies. <laughs> yeah, so I have a picture of the desert up. I, I just it's really cool to to imagine. Um, and I, I've driven through there because our our family lives in Oregon, oh, and okay. sometimes we come through that region. And there's some interesting little towns in that in that area. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So so cool to think of the poetry moving through that landscape. Um, let's hear another one. Yeah. Um, could I read two? One of them's short. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, you know, an example of, uh, um, I, again, we're on this theme of prompts, you know, how does it start? And I, I went to the doctor and the, you know, the doctor's standard question is, well, how do you feel? And, uh, maybe because I'm a poet, I heard that question in a different way. How are you capable of feeling? Hmm. You know, what, what is your capacity for feeling? So this is called poetry doctor. Oh, and what page is it? Oh, sorry. This is on page 92. Okay. Poetry Doctor. So this is in the doctor's voice. How do you feel? How exactly have you learned to feel, to be touched, to apprehend? These twinges you have of compassion, empathy, pain, how long have you had them? Have they grown more intense with age? Do they manifest at sunset, at dawn? in the presence of beauty, of suffering? Does your heart ever skip? Do you ever feel dizzy with delight or shame? Has the grace of a few right words ever blurred your vision, caught your breath? Has your heart ever become a drum when the song's words told you who you are in secret? I'm afraid my diagnosis must remain incomplete Without further tests, Neruda Dickinson Basho. <laughs> you know, the poem kind of wrote itself because we all have in our minds that catechism of a medical <laughs> practitioner. Well, how have you had these? Uh, do they, when do they happen? And how intense are you? know, those questions. And so the, you know, the sort of the, the humor of poetry is to take something mechanical from the world and turn it into uh, kind of a joke, <laughs> a delight. <laughs> or, or just like uh, breathe life into it again, I think. You know? Yeah. Like things yeah. you take for granted. Oh, you know, I have a similar poem um, before the MRI where, you know, they have you fill out, a, I was going for an MRI, and uh, they have you fill out a form. And the questions on the form are just incredible. You know, do you, do you have a, a, a permanent makeup? Do you have a... Uh, tattoos? Do you have shrapnel in your body? You know, these are these are sort of objective questions, but they have a poetic resonance to them. And so I go through all this and, you know, you take your clothes off, you take your rings off, and, and finally the technician, as you're being slid into the MRI chamber, good luck. <laughs> you know, so I knew that's the last line, good luck. The other one I wanted to read you is on the opposite page here, page 93. And... Um, in this case, I was reading about uh, a thing called an ostracon uh, that I had never known about. That, you know, if you think about it, before paper, if people had to jot down a little note, they'd write it either on a stone or a little uh, shirt of pottery. You know, you have a broken pot lying around, you pick up one of the pieces, you just write a note. And, uh, you know, an Egyptian wrote, recorded his dreams on sherds of pottery. Of, of pottery. Mm -hmm. And they're called ostracons because uh, in ancient Athens, 
if you were going to vote on exiling a citizen, you'd write yes or no on a shirt of pottery and throw it into a heap, and then they'd count them, and that person would be ostracized. Oh, you wow. know, it's the same word. So this idea of an ostracon, of a fragment, a single line, which is sort of hauntingly like what we have from Sappho, the you know early Greek poet. We just have these fragments of her poetry. And so these single lines have a haunting kind of loneliness to them. So I decided I'm just going to write an ostracon where every line starts from scratch and then just see what happens uh, atmospherically. Ostracon. I never really knew my mother. Learning to tie my shoes was the beginning. Consoled by the way rivers move. A dream was never enough. Making bread, I forgot you for a moment. Sometimes at night, only breath. Pain is a substance, a stain. One sip, and I remembered. One thing I love about poetry, you know, we, we've probably all talked about this often, what's not said? You know, the negative space, the silences. And a friend of mine was, uh, he's a letterpress printer, he was printing a poem, and he, he said to the poet, you know, it kind of slows me down when the way you have it arranged on the page. And, and the poet said, is that a bad thing? <laughs> to be slowed down? <laughs> to not quite get it? Is that a bad thing? I don't think so. So, um, you know, talking about earlier about um, um, writing poems for people, um, is, yeah. is um, how does that interplay with the idea of poetry being an exploratory act? Like if you're trying to, to explore as you write, um, writing something that for somebody else sort of seems a little bit at odds with that, doesn't it? Um, or are you exploring their, their perspective? Like how do, you, how do you find that process of discovery when you're writing a poem for something like a, a birthday or something like that? Yeah. For me, Tim, there's a delicious uh, simultaneity of knowing and not knowing. You know, um, like the poem I read earlier, White Flag Patriots. Okay, I know, I know what the title is before I write the poem. Well, isn't that a little prescriptive? Quite the opposite. I mean, what in the world are white flag patriots? So you're, uh, it's, again, it's the blind leading the blind. You know, here's a prompt that is in some ways a known thing. Uh, it's already been put into words. And yet it's an invitation to go helplessly into the unknown. You know, if you know what you're going to write about, but you don't have the slightest idea how you're going to do it, or really what that's going to turn out to be. You know, my, my favorite uh, element, both in writing and reading poetry, is, is the turn. You know, where the poem makes an oblique, uh, you know, and yet, but, later. You know, those signals that we're leaving behind the first stage of the rocket here that, you know, got us uh, partway into space. And now we're going into the unknown, into the darkness. So, you know, it's sort of like a, a friendship, a conversation, improvisation in jazz. You, you sort of start from somewhere, but you don't know where you're going. Hmm. So, 
And maybe a follow-up. This is a question from uh, Julian Matthews. Um, do poems always have to have a message? <laughs> I've been criticized. Uh, <laughs> I sent this book, Singer Come From Afar, to a dear friend, and uh, he wrote back and said, you know, you kind of have a habit of, in the last few lines, saying, and so we blah, blah, blah. He said, don't do that. <laughs> trust the poem. You know, trust the unknown but resonant uh, hints in the poem uh, to carry the reader uh, toward the reader's meeting. Uh, it's like, um, who was it who said, uh, end with an image and don't explain. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, every time I teach a class in poetry, I, I quote, uh, Stanley Kunitz said that, you know, end with an image and don't explain. Uh, a sensation, a color, uh, an object. Uh, so poems are locations of meaning, mm -hmm. but they don't have a meaning. It's like that, that story about Isadora Duncan, you know, the first modern free-form dancer, you know, that she is out at the Acropolis with her waving scarves. And, and uh, you know, after her performance, the reporter said, uh, Ms. Duncan, what, what does your dance mean? And she said, if I could tell you that, I wouldn't need to dance. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's how I think of it. I think... Um... You know, uh, you know, as far as a poem having a message, I think a poem is a message. In in your in, but the poet doesn't have a message. You know, yeah. the, the, yeah. the 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 whole act of a poem is trying to to decipher the message that the poem is, you know, is speaking. Yeah. Um, do you want to read another one? I do. Let's go on for hours, Tim. This is we fun. Should. I, I love yeah. the shows. <laughs> it was a good one. So. Yeah. Okay. This is on page fifty. Um, it's called Inmates Call, Inmate Calls Home. And, uh, you know, in the pandemic, I was writing pandemic poems every day, putting them on Instagram, made a couple little books of pandemic poems and put out there and, you know, called my editor at Red Hen Press saying, I know you've already accepted my manuscript, but it would be dishonest not to have some pandemic poems in there. Is it too late? And so on. And so this was one. Um, I have a friend who... Uh, made a vow eight years ago to visit a, a prison in Oregon every day on a Wednesday every week, uh, once a week, uh, and just sit with uh, 20 or so inmates and have a dialogue circle. Just say, how's it going? What are you thinking? What are you wondering? What are you afraid of? What do you remember? And, you know, sometimes they'd read poetry, he'd bring in visitors. Uh, they ended up doing a Shakespeare play in, in the prison and so on. And, um, so my friend Johnny called me up and said, uh, wow, I got a call from uh, Rocky in, in prison. And and he said, Johnny, are you okay? You know, we're used to isolate. We're used to lockdown. Uh, but you're not. Are, are you okay? <laughs> and I was, I was really touched, Tim, by this idea of an inmate having concern for someone who's technically free. So I imagined um, this inmate calling his mother at home. Uh, and so the inmate calls home. Mom, I've been all night worried. This virus thing, they say it gets everywhere. So don't go out, okay? 
Get food, sit tight, read, just read. You like that. Make calls. Not like visits, I know. You love those friends. Nights, I hear you tell them things in my mind. Mom, I've been worried. Cabin fever, yeah, here on the inside, we're used to that. Lots of practice. Time crawls like a broken dancer. You watch it. But Mom, what you gonna do with all that time? No visits, no go where you want, no bench in the park you like. Nights, Mom, no worry. No you worry, okay? Me, I'm good. I'm so good. Well, Johnny sent the poem to Rocky, and, and Rocky wrote back and said, I'm so glad someone on the outside knows what I feel. Hmm. You know, to me, that was that was about as good as it gets, Tim. Yeah. You know, that the poem got through to one person. Mm -hmm. That's enough. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you want to talk about these little books that you've been publishing? This is yeah. an interesting idea to me. And it kind of ties into some of the stuff we were talking about before, as far as like different ways to publish. But um, but but I've always felt like if you're if you want to be sort of part of the you know writer club and and be a professor somewhere, <laughs> you need books from real publishers. Yeah. But if you just love poetry and want to share poems, like what a lot of people do, with no aspirations yeah. for um, for joining that club and and um, you know and, and being a professor tenured somewhere, um, then then there's really no reason to wait for a press and to slog through all that because. Because a press can't really give you an audience anyway anymore, and it doesn't can't do much for marketing. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, you're kind of on your own as a poet either way, and so you might yeah. as well be on your own um, quickly and affordably, I guess you could say. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah. so what was it that made you? And I'll, I'll put some of these on the screen uh, for everybody at home. But, but what made you want to put these books together? I, we have the flavor of unity, post-election poems. We have yeah. um, Earth, Earth verse. And we have uh, Peace Warrior, poems in English and Spanish. And these are just little little self-published books of poems. They're, they're little, I don't know how many pages, like maybe uh, 40, 50 pages. 48 pages. Ah, there you go, 48 pages. <laughs> yeah. That's the minimum that the lulu.com will, will print for you. Ah. Uh, you know, and they cost about two bucks to print each one or less. Um, and I'll tell you a story of how it started, Tim. So I, I was infected by that idea of uh, real writers don't self-publish. You know, vanity, press, uh, mm -hmm. that's a very uh, moralistic <laughs> identification. Uh, you know, leaving aside that Walt Whitman did it, uh, he'd be in good company. But uh, here's what happened. Um, Trump got elected. And it was the fall of uh, 2016, and uh, I started writing poems about uh, democracy and about every voice and about justice. And you know, I just sort of went down that uh, river. Uh, and then I heard that the Women's March was going to happen the day after the inauguration, and I decided I'm going to put out a book of poems to be given away at the Women's March, not to be sold, uh, to be given away. And so I wrote to seven editors I'd worked with over the years, you know, Copper Canyon, Gray Wolf, others, uh, saying, you've got to help me get this book out. None of them even wrote back. Yeah. You know, they're busy people with uh, famous writers. So I decided uh, <laughs> I'm going to self-publish on lulu.com. So I, I, you know, I went on and 
I'm not a techie, so it took me some struggle to figure out how to do it. But uh, finally, I got the book together and I called up uh, a person at Lulu and I said, you know, I want to order uh, a thousand copies. And she said wisely, well, you know, usually people, they want one copy to make sure it worked. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, I don't have time. <laughs> you know, this is a leap of faith. Um, and so she had read the book. You know, I didn't know this, but uh, she said, well, since you're under deadline, we're going to waive the shipping, the shipping cost. And I thought, you know, if you're in business, you waive the shipping cost in order to make a sale. Yeah. You don't waive it before the sale. So I realized she read the book. Oh, wow. Uh, so I got these thousand copies and... Uh, I sent them to friends, students, uh, relatives all over the country, and they were handed out. And so then I was I was hooked, Tim. I thought, uh, if in a couple days I can make a book, be the editor, be the writer, be the publisher, and send forth a cluster that has a kind of a compact gift, then that's what I'm going to do. And that little book, The Flavor of Unity, it's made it to India. It's made it to Norway. It's in Egypt. You know, it's in Mexico. It's in Colombia. It's traveling under its own steam because it fits in your pocket. It's uh, it's not a heavy literary tome. Mm -hmm. It's a little informal sheaf of good wishes. So can people uh, buy those on Lulu? Go to lulu.com mm -hmm. and search for Kim Stafford. And I think there are 20 books there now. Oh, wow. So I assume yeah. they're going to be a, a Ukraine poems book soon. Probably. It's going to arrive in about a week. It's called Sunflower Seeds. It's got a big sunflower on the cover. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's interesting. It reminds me of um, what a lot of uh, uh, musicians do with like their own official bootleg yeah. series, kind of. You know, like they yeah. record live concerts and then... Uh, and then and then release those as albums because people are gonna gonna be bootlegging anyway, and yeah. uh, you might as well take advantage of it. Get it ahead of the curve. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But but it's the same kind of. It's a cool idea, and um, th there's a weird thing in, involved though in the way that we just conceive of value in our society. Yeah. You know, like the pricing of something. Uh, you know, like you you can raise the price on something to give the impression of more value. There's a great story. <laughs> um, what is it in uh, in in Kilcini's book about um, about how the, he was advising some people um, on, on their pricing, and and she and, and they were selling like trinkets or something, yeah, and um, for like five dollars each, little necklaces, and um, and and, and the, uh, the the owner sent a sent a message to the employee and said, hey, let's let's cut these in half for the uh, for the weekend because there's a big weekend thing, and the employee misread the message. And um, raised the price ten times to fifty dollars from five, <laughs> and they sold out immediately because everybody thought they had more value because they were worth fifty dollars. And um, and there's a way that we do that though. Whereas if we're giving yeah. something away for free, like some yeah. kind of implicitly subconsciously, we don't think it has as much yeah. value. So how do you get past that problem with with giving your poems out for free? Uh, I have a counter story for you, Tim. Uh told to me by a friend who lived in Hanoi for a while. Um, she learned this from the uh, Iraqi uh, ambassador in Hanoi. I just love the whole, you know, they were sitting in the garden of the embassy having tea the day the war in Iraq started. Uh, and he told her this story. He said, you know, well, years ago, the, uh, the court poet 
at the court of the Sultan uh, in Arabia. You know, I had this court poet who would uh, make uh, praise songs and so on. And if the Sultan liked them, then he would pay the poet. So one day the poet, uh, you know, sang out a, a recent a new poem. And uh, the Sultan summoned his uh, bookkeeper and, you know, with his pen, wrote on a little scrap of paper how much the poet should be paid. And the pen was leaking, so there was a series of dots, across, you know, which are zeros in the Arabic numeration. And so it was like $5 million. <laughs> and the bookkeeper said to the Sultan, uh, uh, you know, Your Majesty, this can't be uh, accurate. And the Sultan said, Who am I to say my hand does not know my heart's most intimate desire? Oh, wow. That's great. <laughs> you know, now poets, of course, love this story. Um, but what is the value of um, heart music uh, at the end of the day? Uh, there's a saying I learned from a friend. Um, he was talking about marriage. The benefits are many, the gifts are many, but the price is everything. And I think the price of life without poetry, without music, without children, without uh, hope is everything. So, you know, maybe the little books, so they go for $5 uh, or they're given away free. Um, what are they worth? Well, what's happiness worth? What's kinship worth? Mm -hmm. Um, another thing that you do that's interesting, you have these QR codes um, that yeah. you've done with um, with Singer Come From Afar, and um, and they link to things like readings and and um, and prompts and and sort of with more explanation. I have the sheet here. I'll I'll show everybody yeah. what I'm talking about. But there are these QR codes, and of course you can scan them on it with any smartphone, and uh, it'll you know pop up a little bubble and say, "Do you want to go to this link?" And then yeah. um, you can see sort of further reading on, on certain yeah. poems and, and your own voice reading, your translations, all sorts of things. Yeah. Um, can you explain, like, why did you, why did you do that? Well, I was uh, wandering aimlessly on the web one time, and I came to a site that described a literary walk in Reykjavik in Iceland, where you go along and there's a series of QR codes, and with your phone, you can hear an Icelandic poet reading a poem about the landscape. And I just thought... Oh, this idea has to take over the world. Uh, and so again, not being a techie, it took me a while to figure out how to do it, but it is quite doable. And uh, anyone who's interested on my website, which is kimstaffordpoet.com, there's a heading called QR codes, and there's a description about how to do this and how to use this. Um, so again, <laughs> I wrote to editors. I wrote to the Academy of American Poets. I wrote to Joy Harjo, uh, you know, and I said, I think this QR code idea, which is generally used to sell products or to take you to the menu or to the catalog, what if it took you to a child reading a poem or a translation of the poem or the first draft of the poem or the landscape where the poem was written? Uh, or a film with music. Uh, and my, my, one of my editor friends said, well, I don't even have that app on my phone. And I said, but high school students do. You know, if they're sitting reading a big textbook and they read a Langston Hughes poem, why shouldn't they with their phone be able to hear Langston Hughes read the poem? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you see a poster for a poetry reading, why not be able to hear the poet read one of the poems? 
it, it would uh, it would increase. So there's that uh, page that I sent you, Tim, is on the website under the QR heading at kimstaffordpoet.com. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, we have, um, it's just cool that the different things technology can do and it's neat to see you, you know, play with them and, and sort of take advantage. Yeah. We had uh, an issue number 27 of Rattle. We, it was a slam issue. So we had a CD that we, uh, we had yeah. made and then, and then, you know, glued in the back yeah. flap. Um, but now, you know, we would definitely do it this way. I've been thinking yeah. many times if we did a slam issue again or a performance poets issue or a musician's issue, yeah. um, to just have the a QR code right on the page with the poem. And then you can go to the, yeah. the extra media. Um, and, and it's what, just, what I loved about yeah. this, Tim, is it circles us all the way back to sitting around the fire. Mm -hmm. yeah, you know, it, yeah. it uses technology to return us to the world of the voice. Mm hmm. Yeah, which is just what we're trying to do here, and and uh, yeah. and and that's yeah. why I love this doing this show so much. It's just so fun to sit around as if you know a campfire, and share poems and, and talk and 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 learn and and hear hear the music of speech. Yeah. Um, let's hear another poem. Yeah, this is um, it's on page thirty-eight. <clears throat> it's called "All My Relations," <clears throat> and this grew out of the custom, it's been a long time coming, and I'm glad it's here, of some kind of land acknowledgement that often uh, inaugurates a reading or an event where you say, let's remember the indigenous people of this place. Um, and it's it's a little bit like, um, you know, I gave a reading in uh, Hana on Maui one time, and I was struck by how you know, in America, when you give a reading, someone gets up and tells how famous you are and what your books are and, uh, you know, and then you get up and read poems and then books are sold. In Hana, it goes like this. You come into the room and you're dressed in flowers <laughs> and there's music going and there's some food there and there are families, children. And one of the aunties gets up and gives a, a blessing in Hawaiian, and then it's translated. And the blessing is, is basically something like, we are so grateful that our visitor has left his family and has traveled here to bring us songs and stories to help us live more deeply with one, you know, this beautiful kind of invocation. So, so this uh, poem, All My Relations, is often what I would begin a reading with. I want to thank all my relations for this chance to be on earth in her time of flourishing. To thank the first people of this place, the Multnomah people, the Clackamas, Malala, Tualatin, and Chinook, to honor their sovereignty in long and continuing relation, still teaching us how we might be here together. I want to thank my mother and father, Moon and Sun, for setting me forth before their own passing on. To thank my grandmother who listened to me so eloquently, I learned to listen to my own heart and mind, to find stories and songs there. To thank my family and friends and all citizens and travelers who study and work for deeper kinship in this place with one another and with all creatures, one earth, visible, palpable, fragile, intricate, resonant, in need of our better stories. I want to thank you who have gathered to receive what I have carried here in hope that something I have may meet something you need so all our relations may be strengthened 
for the life we live together. Amen. <laughs> I just feel like saying amen. And the funny thing, Tim, I read that, uh, I was reading with uh, Claudia Castro Luna up in Vancouver, Washington, and uh, uh, an elder from the Cowlitz tribe came up afterward and said, where did you get that phrase, all my relations? We, we in the Cowlitz, we end, if you write a letter at the end, you say, uh, AMR, hmm. all my relations. I said, well, I think I got it from the earth. Hmm. Uh, we haven't talked much about, about craft and the way you, you compose poems and what you're, you're aiming for. Um, and, and when I read your poems, there's always um, a, real, a real sense of music and a sense, but a, an unobtrusiveness too. So it feels like the, um, you know, like the first line maybe starts to generate some of the sounds as you go through. But there's a way that the poet, like, as a poet, you like stay in the background. Like the line breaks and the, and the length of the poem are all sort of have this, this natural, like, I'm not going to get in the way of this <laughs> feeling. Um, so, so how do you go about doing that? And, and why do you think that's the style that you're drawn to? You made my day, Tim. <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad they read that way. Um, you know, my dad had a phrase somewhere, uh, let me be a plain unmarked envelope passing through the world. You know, uh, read my lips, forget my name. Um, the, the, the music is what I think really draws me back to the table of the Feast of Poetry. Uh, you know, like in this last poem, I was aware, both in writing it and in reading it, when you get to the part, um, one earth, visible, palpable, fragile, intricate, resonant, you know, syntax has fallen away. And uh, what's happening is a film uh, or a dream or something flowing. Um, and my... I, I don't know if this is the accurate word, but my first draft of a poem I think of as the armature. You know, in sculpture, you make a, often a steel structure, and then you begin to pack it with clay or plaster or whatever you're using. And the first draft is, uh, you know, is sort of the skeleton. And then I go through a series of revisions looking for where it might sing. <laughs> you know, where I could disappear, as you say. And uh, the beautiful, eloquent, resonant, uh, intimate signals from the world and from humans, uh, from dreams, from memories, could take over the making of the poem. Uh, and so reading aloud is a big part of it. I, I have to be writing where... <laughs> No one is nearby, you know, to hear me mumbling, going through it again and again and again. And you just hear the clunker, you know, the syllables that, well, I need three syllables there, but not that word. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, so that search for um, how I could be more like a bird oh, yeah. <laughs> and sing. Mm -hmm. and, and then the, the line breaks, too, in, in, the, in the size of the poem. Um, you know, they, they tend to be, you know, about a page, a little less than a page. And, um, and, and I don't know, the, the, you know, you will break lines after an article, which a lot of people frown upon and things yeah. like that. But just, <laughs> uh, it makes you feel like, like, you know, I'm not even trying to be poetic. And, you, you, you know, it lets the poem speak for itself. But um, is, there, is there a way that you, like, why, why choose a line break where it is? Is that part of the music, too? Um. 
Yeah, what I think Denise Levertov said, a line break is half a comma. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think it's partly just insisting on, you know, like my yoga teacher says, don't forget to breathe. <laughs> you know, it's inviting the reader, and this isn't a premeditated, I've never really thought about this, but your question helps me, Tim. Um, the The poem is trying to not be a poem. <laughs> to be of the nature of the heart of a conversation with an intimate friend. Uh, you know, my mom used to, I was very shy as a kid. I never talked to anybody. And my mom would try to encourage me. Small talk leads to big talk. Mm -hmm. You know, well, big talk is, as Wordsworth says, uh, it's what ordinary people say at times of great emotion. Yeah, I think he said that about, that's what poetry is. Poetry is what uh, ordinary people say at times of great emotion. And to try to find that uh, in the poem, in the successive revisions of the poem, try to whittle it down to that core uh, utterance to an intimate friend where you're neither being fancy nor nonchalant. <laughs> you know, that middle way, Buddhist middle way to uh, be casual and uh, intense at the same time. Um, we'll do two more questions uh, from the audience and one more poem, I think, because we're yeah. getting up on time. Um, Sharon Fronte asks, uh, does Kim have any untitled poems? I've been writing more untitled poems lately. I'm not sure why. And which is just brings in, in general, like, like what is your idea? Like what is a title for and, and how do you come up with a title? Yeah, that's a funny story. Uh, one of my students had a poetry professor and my student, he was an undergraduate at the time, he turned in a, an untitled poem and his, you know, his professor got on his case for that. You've got to have a title. And the student said, well, Emily Dickinson didn't have titles. And the professor said, I'll tell you what, when you can write as well as Emily Dickinson, you can stop using titles. <laughs> so I think of the title as an incredible opportunity. I mean, where else do you get to write a sentence fragment in neon, uh, you know, to feature an enigma? Um, maybe this is an odd thing to admit, but I almost without fail write the title first. Hmm. Uh, you know, a friend of mine said, he studied uh, British and American poetry. He said, uh, British poets know where they're going when they start writing, and then they complete the task. American poets don't know where they're going. Well, maybe I'm British. I sort of know at least the context that I have entered into by putting that title, Easy Pickings or White Flag Patriots, and then writing from that. Um, I have an exercise I do with my students, which is um, write your poem, and then write three possible titles for the poem, a short one, a long one and a strange one, and then see which one you like best. Mm -hmm. And often it's that third one that people choose. You know, the short one is sort of a, it's sort of naming the poem, you know, titling. The second one is exploring the atmospheric context of the poem. So you're learning as you're doing these successive titles. And then the strange one is, uh, is the poetic one. Mm -hmm. So. I hope that answers your question. 
Yeah, I think it does. It's a great answer. Um, and, and back to the money question. Um, Dick Westheimer asks, um, if poetry is made better by its disconnect with money, does that imply that the giant, well-funded poetry institutions are distorting the poetry landscape in a bad way? I love that question. I don't know the answer, but I love that question. And I hope the the big, uh, well-funded uh, poetry organizations are asking that question of themselves. You know, does our secure funding impede our mission for the intuitive uh, experience of poetry? Um, I I like to wander the streets. I, I, I like to listen to people. Um, uh, I like to eavesdrop on my own mind. Um, I think big poetry organizations suffer from their prominence. You know, when you when you have funding and a board of directors and so on, you are accountable. And that's foreign to my experience of what makes poetry so delicious. <laughs> so I'm I'm not judging them, but I'm uh, inviting them to be aware of the danger and to work against it. Uh, institutions trade security, uh, trade away freedom for security. Mm -hmm. At least that's the danger. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and along those, a similar, slightly similar topic, but, but people have mentioned you and, and called you a people's poet on here um, in the chat window. And, and as such, I always wonder what people think about, is everyone a poet? You know, I mean, I, I feel like we've evolved to have this way of, of speaking and storytelling um, where we all participate. I think that's our, that's our human evolution. And so I believe that we're all poets. But, some, you know, a lot of people would argue that, you know, that artistry is a certain, you know, you have a certain sort of, you know, psychological makeup and creativity and, and all that stuff. Do you think everybody is a poet, like, deep inside? <laughs> um, I would rather say everyone could be a poet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, my father used to say the field of poetry will never be crowded not because people can't do it, but they don't think they can do it. Mm -hmm. And as a teacher, I am a great believer in uh, the potential of everyone to enhance their life experience and the experience of those around them by uh, spending time on the page uh, with the, the delights and surprises of poetry. So again, I, I wouldn't make an absolute statement about who is a poet or who is not a poet. But I'm more interested in um, who could be a poet. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I realize this about my teaching, Tim, that um, I'm more fond of a poem in progress than a finished poem. And I'm more fond of uh, a writer than the writing. Hmm. I just like to be with writers, talking, exploring. And I'm finally more fond of people than writers, <laughs> you know, and maybe that obliquely responds to this question. Uh, the human impulse to, uh, first of all, carry a secret uh, and then to reveal it. That's the magic we do. Our son, when he was very young, he, he said he burst out. He was about 12 years old. Dad, we didn't become human when we invented tools because... When you use a tool, you just look at the tool. We became human when we sat around the fire and looked into each other's eyes and told stories. <laughs> you know, so in that sense, we're all in that circle. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Yeah, great way to put it. Um, let's finish that with one last poem. Okay, this is uh, on page 19. Um, and this is a poem from the Trump era. It's called Dear Mr. President. Uh, I have this friend, Antonio uh, Dominguez. He was undocumented. He was in danger. Uh, he's now documented. I wrote a letter on his behalf, and others did, because he's such a wonderful person. But, uh, you know, maybe this is an example, Tim, to end with. So I wrote this poem for Antonio, although it's addressed to Dear Mr. President. And when Antonio read the poem, he wept. So that's what I'm in this business for. Dear Mr. President, in sheer contradiction of your efforts to warn our fellow citizens of the danger of immigrants, a certain Antonio from Michoacan, who has been living without documents as my neighbor for 15 years, has put me to shame with his work ethic, thrift, good humor, and courage, building stone walls, repairing roads, tilling gardens, and otherwise inflicting beauty and good order on this neglected corner of our nation, in spite of all you say to drive him away. Sir, you are not getting through. He keeps smiling and bending to any task we offer for simple wages, humming a song I can't get out of my head or heart. I do not know how to advise you, sir. You have labored long and loud to cast him down, cast him out, but he just keeps humming that song. Que linda esta la mañana en que vengo a saludarte. He is saying, the morning is beautiful, sir. And he greets you singing. Yeah, dear Mr. President, beautiful poem to end on from Singer Come From Afar. Um, Kim Stafford, thanks so much for being a guest. It's just been a, a wonderful episode. Great talking to you. Great hearing these wonderful poems. I really appreciate it. And it's been, people said it's like a master class getting to sit with you for an hour. And, Kim, uh, I want to thank you for everything you do for all of us who, who love and live by poetry. Rattle Magazine is off the charts in its professionalism, generosity, and hospitality to the poetic impulse. Well, well thanks so much, Kim. I really appreciate that. Okay. Take care. Take care. Yes, that was Kim Stafford um, with his new book, Singer Come From Afar, which you can see on the screen right here. And uh, you can find it from Red Hen Press. Of course, you can find all of Kim's uh, poems and work at his website, kimstaffordpoet.com, uh, which I'll put on the screen right there, kimstaffordpoet.com. Um, you can find the, all these books, the, the small self-published books, um, the, the bigger books, um, the, all the prompts. There's so much to do. Um, at kimstaffordpoet.com. So do check that out. Now we're going to take a quick break um, and we're going to go to the open lines. Um, how we're going to do that is uh, through Zoom, as always. And I'm going to put up a link to the uh, to Zoom. So first of all, email your poem right now if you'd like to share a poem to openmic at rattle.com. That's openmic at rattle.com. And then I'm going to put the Zoom link in the chat windows. Now only go there if you would like to share a poem. Um, you don't have to um, go over to Zoom if you don't want to share a poem. Just stay right where you are and, and enjoy these poems on the open lines if you don't have a poem to share. But if you would like to share one, uh, come on in over to the chat. Let me find the... Um, where is the link? I always forget. Invite. There it is. 
Okay, so I'm going to post the, the link in the chat window. And uh, come on over to Zoom. And then once you once you uh, read your poem on Zoom, you can you can leave Zoom and go back to wherever you were watching this before. And that way you can get the full experience and see the poems um, as people are reading them. So um, here is the Zoom link. And I will pin that to the top. And over on Facebook, it's over here. If you're listening on Twitter, um, you have to go find find uh, Facebook or, or YouTube. So I'm going to go to a quick break and I will be right back with the open lines. Thanks for your patience, everybody who's sticking around for the open lines. Um, the prompt for this week was to write a poem about something you were wrong about. And uh, me and Megan both, we were on vacation this week. We went to um, the Sedona, Arizona, that northern northern Arizona area, and kind of hung out and hiked. And, and I thought we'd write poems there, but we didn't. And then when we got back, we were so busy trying to catch up on all the things we weren't doing while we were on vacation that we didn't write one. I wrote one. Um, I wrote a little bit this morning, and I have like a half poem, but I'm not going to share. My New Year's resolution was to not rush a poem and to only share them when they're finished. So I'm not going to share a poem this week, and Megan didn't have one either. So uh, we will just go to Open Lines and see if anybody has any poems that you were wrong about. You can also share poems, of course, about anything you'd like, about um, news poems, about um, you know recently published poems, whatever you'd like to share. Um, let's Let's hear what you've got. And let's go to Audrey first. Um, Audrey's video is already up. I gotta make it so. Let's see. Can unmute themselves. And now I can ask. Yeah. Hey, Audrey. How are you doing today? I'm great. Good to be here. Yeah, it's great um, to have you always. Um, so, what do you have that you would like to share? Okay. Um, this is one that I wrote about the news this week. Mm -hmm. If only. If only the fairy godmother heard voices of soldiers in Mariupol screaming beneath the missiles, standing stalwart in the land of nodding sunflowers, she would have rushed off to grant a few extra wishes after finishing with Cinderella's beribboned blue gown and orange pumpkin coach. If she only heard the silences of the dead babies, war-weary mothers, senseless loss, she'd leave the kingdom of princes and castles post-haste and point her potent wand accusingly at Vladimir and turn him into a hoarsely croaking frog to perform on the stage of the smoldering theater. Isn't that what fairy godmothers are supposed to do? Isn't it? Thank yeah, you. Yeah, excellent poem. Thanks for sharing. Very vivid. I, I love that. Thanks for sharing that, Audrey. You're welcome. Okay, and let's go to let's mute. Let's go to um. Let's go to uh, Mary Lisa. Hi, Timothy. Hey, Mary Lisa. Um, Hi, everyone. De Didamanesis. Is that? Um, 
It's okay. D diminishes. Okay. Yeah, D diminishes. Okay. So so I'm glad it's the first time you've joined us, I believe, unless you've called in a, a long time ago. No, it's my first time. Very um, cool. Well, where are, you, uh, where are you calling from, first of all? Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm in Northfield, New Jersey, about 10 minutes from Atlantic City, about, well, if you go along with the traffic, about 40 minutes to Philly. <laughs> uh-huh. Very cool. And what do you have that you'd like to share? Okay, so this is an older poem, but it's sort of fitting in with my manuscript, my longer book. Um, and um, it, I think it was actually, no, it was not. It was not published in my chapbook. Uh, so, okay, I'm just going to read. Okay. Uh, this is called Some Poems My Mother Might Not Want to Read Cannot Be Excluded. Two wrongs don't make a right, said God, almighty, said my mother. Yet she held my sister's hand above the flame, not close enough to burn her skin, just near enough to make her scream in fear and struggle to be free and learn a lesson. Well, I was just about to show or ask my mother something. I was coming from the hall and I was just about to walk into the kitchen when I saw them there. My sister stood accused beyond a doubt. And I'm sorry, I knew my sister had been caught, but not at what. And so I listened hard to know would I be next and felt my breath seize up, then fled to think up ways to not be bullied into silence. But I could not save my sister or myself, who with my brother, were the cause of all her torment. No, we could not stop our mother crossing over. Did we hear her? Did we? Did we understand? We could not calm or cure her spirit. Anytime she lost her mind on us, we could not help to find it. Though we'd given in already, we'd admitted imperfection. We were cornered and we cowered, small and helpless, quite compliant. We could burn in hell forever for dishonor. Yet I Dreamed her dead sometimes. Sometimes I killed her from my bed, forgetting God and for my sister's hands held close to living hell and for myself and for my brother. Mother's pigeons trained to dance around in circles, to maneuver in our cages, to be fed her mother food withheld each time. Her eyes flashed wide and filled with hatred for her own life, starving, hungry. She was starving God. She must have been. A beautiful poem. I love the energy of that. Thanks so much for sharing that, Mary Lisa. Oh, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, my pleasure. Hope you share another poem again very soon. Thank you. Cool, thanks. I will. Thank you. I'll try. Okay. Um, yeah, that was uh, Mary Lisa Data Menesis. And let's go to, oh, Gus Peterson is here. Um, Gus has the Tuesday poem coming up. So um, this is going to be another Poets Respond poet. Um, hey, Gus, how you doing? Good, Tim. How are you? I'm doing great. It's good to see you. So, uh, so you, you had a poem in Poetry Spawn, I think, five years ago once, um, but that was before we were doing a show. So it's good to see you for the first yeah. time. Yeah, uh, it only took five years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, five years for another one. And this is um, Mathura Man Sets Record. And I re- really want to preface this poem because do not attempt this at home. Um, but it's uh, Mathura Man Sets Record by Staring at Sun for Over an Hour. And uh, can you explain a little bit about, about how this, this poem came to be and, and why this, this strange and, and um, dangerous news story uh, resonated with you? Uh, well, um, I was basically driving uh, uptown to do a coffee run for work. And uh, we, where I work uh, and live is in central Maine. Well, I actually work in southern Maine, but I have a long commute. And it's... Uh, the sun is out along a lot now, and main winters typically are very dark, very gray, very alpine. Um, and the light 
um, that when the sun's directly overhead like that, we've been inside for so long, especially these past two years with lockdown in a lot of areas. Um, it's it, the brilliance of the sun really just was literally hurting my eyes. And it just kind of struck me how inside a creature I've been. Um, and I do recognize that that is a, you know, quite a privileged thing to have and to be able to do. There's a lot of people who don't have that luxury. So, um, but the, the fact that the sun was <laughs> kind of just bouncing off everything, little remnants of snow, lighter colored buildings and cars, like it just, you know, later in the summer, your eyes kind of adjust to that. And it's just a normalcy of day-to-day life because you're outside more. And now, you know, it, it just kind of hurts. So you're squinting and, you know, cause I didn't have my sunglasses with me and I'm squinting, trying to see down the road. And, um, I don't know, it, it, it kind of put a lot of things in perspective, I think with everything that's going on right now in the world. Um, yeah, yeah, it, it does. It, it forms such a great sort of extended and, and, and sort of distant, you know, subtle metaphor for what, just what's going on and, and how difficult it is to look um, it, it, all that's going on in the world. Um, so it's a really cool poem. I, and there's a video um, in the link, which people will see later. There's actually a video um, yeah. of, of the man doing it. And I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I believe it. And I really hope nobody, yeah. nobody tries it because it's, you know, you just burn out your retina. Yeah. I know. I know during the last eclipse, I work for a welding supplier. We mm-hmm. distribute supplies and they have welding shields, obviously that can help blind out, you know, like the glare from the, the welding process, plasma and what have you. And we, uh, the employees and us, we took some of those filters and built little sunglasses so we could actually watch the eclipse safely. Um, and this guy did it without blinking for an hour. And that's exactly as you said, like I couldn't, I actually heard it on the radio. You know how like shock jocks will just kind of throw these little like mm-hmm. wacky tidbits of information. And in. this was on, um, kind of an in-between uh, like segment and I just had to go back and Google it because I just I was like I can't even I can't not blink for 30 seconds <laughs> an hour and I think we probably found the same video I think the Times of India I think <laughs> yeah, was exactly. mm-hmm. yeah but and I think from the sources I read they actually had him medically checked out after and his sight was fine yeah that's what it seemed to say yeah. I just I don't believe I it just, it's, all, it's like that kind of like you know the the breatharians and things and and I just don't yeah. believe it <laughs> I know but uh but but what a strange story but it's a cool metaphor um and, and a really good poem so let's let's hear it okay let me just get pulled up and hopefully forgive my lack of linguistic skills I don't butcher um the the name of the town Mothra man sets record by staring at sun for over an hour 70 and retired, it comes to this. Apertures white as snow, the comforting dark. Out of sight, out of mind. The tired engines bark and burp of black fireworks he saw explode once like a profusion of lotus across night. And the summer sun softened streets, cool river mud between boyhood toes. He does this unblinking because it hurts the light that bounces off this world. We squint and squint, trying to adjust, not so much to shut out as look past it. Yeah, just a great, great poem, great ending there too. Um, thanks so much for for sharing that. That's gonna be Tuesday's poem uh, on Rattle dot com. Mathura man sets record by staring at sun for over an hour. Um, yeah, thanks for joining us and for sharing that, Gus. Yeah, thank you very much, and you know for the good work like we've been talking about over the past couple of years of pandemic, the good work you guys do at Rattle has I think helped keep a lot of us grounded yeah uh, my pleasure yes yeah i love doing all the stuff we do and i'm glad glad people are here to do it with me so so thank you thank you okay yeah that was gus peterson with uh with the poem coming up on tuesday
And now let's go to Jackie McManus. I don't know if Jackie's been on in a while. Let's see. Hello. Hey, Jackie, how you hey. doing? <laughs> I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. I don't have any uh, video. If you want to click your turn your video on. Um. Or, or... I don't actually. It, it actually has. I've been. It's been problematic lately, so it, is, it doesn't always work for me. All right. Well, that's so... no problem at all. We can still show the poem and, and hear you. So, so where are you calling from? Um, I'm calling from Washington, uh-huh. right on the border of Oregon, near the Dells. Oh yeah, I love the Dells. That's a great area. Um, what uh, what what would you like to share? Um, the poem is called Moby Dick and Trail Mix. And uh, did you send it in? Um, did you submit oh, it, or I send did... it over? No, I didn't. Shall I? Shall shall I? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, maybe just so people can see it. Do you want to email it to me right now? We'll jump to you later in the in a couple. Okay, couple that, that sounds great. Yeah, sure. Because it's nice to see the poem too. So just email it to open mic at rattle dot com. Okay, thanks, Tim. Okay, yeah. Okay, let's go instead to another first-time caller. I think Johnny Stallings. Thanks, Tim. Um, When uh, Kim was talking just now about that uh, poem, Inmate Writes Home, Mm -hmm. uh, I'm the one who shared the story about the inmate. Oh, wow. I'm so glad glad he could join us. That is really cool. Yeah. um, Anyway... uh, these are kind of, you could think of them as Ukraine poems. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a big question for pacifists. Uh, you know, you kind of want to, it's so exciting. Everybody wants to beat the drum and say, send the Ukrainians some anti-tank uh, weapons quick. And uh, <clears throat> anyway, uh, for pacifists, you have to come at it at some more oblique kind of way, let's say. Mm-hmm. And here's a couple little, very short poems. Okay, yeah, put them on um, screen. Go ahead whenever you're ready. Okay. Um, the first one is um, My Foolproof Plan for World Peace. It's written about a year ago. I hereby declare today to be International Love Day and a general armistice. All hostilities must cease on International Love Day. Henceforward, every day is International Love Day. Oh, I love that. That's great. We should try it. Uh, yeah, I kind of liked the fact that I just pronounced it, you know. <laughs> well, maybe it'll work. You never know. Um, so and then this one is called Let's Pretend. Uh Instead of pretending that we are afraid, that we must improve, that we have enemies, that the future will arrive someday, let's pretend everything is sacred. Pretend this is paradise. Pretend every moment is precious. Pretend we love everyone. Pretend our joy knows no bounds. Pretend we are the whole wide world. Yeah, excellent pair of short poems. Thanks so much, Johnny, for sharing those and for joining us. It's great to see you. Thank you. Yeah, I hope you can share some more poems uh, in the future, too. Okay, thanks for the invite. Yeah, take care. It was Johnny Stallings with uh, My Foolproof Plan for World Peace and Let's Pretend, uh, two short poems. Uh, Let's go next. Let's go to Sharon Ferrante. Hey, Sharon, how you doing? Hey, did I unmute? You did. You're good. Okay. 
So how are you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. And what what would you like to share with us? Kim was great. Kim was great. Yeah, that was a good episode. They've been, they're just all yeah. good, but this is an especially good one, I think. Yeah. Uh, I have a prompt poem. Uh-huh. And like I asked Kim that question because lately I've been writing and I'm not able to put a title on it. Normally I... I used to write the title first and then roll into the poem, and now I'm like stuck on the title. But I love what he said. Yeah, it's a so great I suggestion. To... I'm gonna have to try that yeah. anytime I can't think of the title. Is that it's a true. Weird one, you know? Yeah, a lot of times, like the the title just you'll see on the critique of the week, the title just isn't interesting, you know, and it doesn't engage in any way. And so, um, you know, that 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 process of getting an interesting one is a good suggestion. Yeah. I think. Oh, he he gave me great answer. Yeah. But the, the poem has no title. Okay. And uh, what was it? Something. So what was the prompt? Something, uh, something that, that I we was were wrong, wrong about. about. Yeah. 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 All right, it's untitled, but I'll just read it. Okay. There's a gecko in my bed that turns into a cat toy. All those times I was wrong. There was still the time I was right. So actually, when I carry a lamp, the moth does think I'm the moon. And the moss on the oak is fungi. And loss is just an invitation to stillness. And those words in a song, I thought I heard. Yes, I heard them. When I tell you the time and it's wrong, I'm still right. Oh, excellent. I love that. I love especially that the moth does think I'm the moon. Or when I carry the lamp, my, the moth does think I'm the moon. That's great. My my mind just went in reverse with it. Like before the time you find out you're wrong, you know, that time there. Yeah, it perfect. was so much fun again, Tim. Thank you so much, Tim. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah. Thanks, Sharon. Okay. And let's go to uh let's go to Nivedita next. Hello. Hey, Nivi. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, thank you. How about you? I'm doing excellent. Uh, what do you have that you would like to share? Um, I have a prompt poem, and again, in line with what Sharon just said, mine doesn't really have a title. The line one could be considered a title because it switches from line one to the end of the poem to what I thought and then what it was actually, I'm hoping, I still don't know if it's right or wrong, but anyway. So again, I think coming up with a nice catchy title is is something that is getting harder and harder to do. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully. yeah. Okay. Well, let's hear it. Life has turned you into an automaton. Life has turned you into an automaton. Like a rose in a thorny bush, you repel thoughts, words, and deeds of comfort. Your finely sculpted heart knows no softness, and your wooden eyes know no emotions. Tears that form stay stuck to your stiff eyelashes, just like a stalactite cavern enclosing your soul. Tears that do escape fall like sandpaper shavings, blown far and wide and too insignificant to encounter. Yet, I wonder, is it life that has turned you into an automaton or the people you encounter? We all tread through the same paths in life, just meeting new people and having new experiences along the way. So I stand corrected. Life is merely that, life. It is your response to the people around you. 
your response to the experiences that has made you what you are. Your survival instinct has turned you. You have turned yourself into an automaton. Yeah, great, great advice. Thanks for sharing that. Maybe life has turned you into an automaton. And um, yeah, life is what we make of it. Mm -hmm. So in the end, I guess it's we who make ourselves what we are, maybe an automaton or an actual human. We, we'll never know. I'm guessing that's what it is. So, <laughs> Yeah, well, very cool. Well, thanks so much as always, Nivi. It's always a pleasure seeing you thanks. and sharing Thank poems. Thanks. Lovely talking to you too. Have a great Sunday. You too. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye. It's Nivedita Karthik, where the life has turned you into an automaton. Let's go to Kathy Gibbons. Hey, Kathy, you there? I think you got unmute. There you go. There I am. Okay. Tricky. <laughs> I haven't done this before, so. Yeah, how you doing? Um, wonderful, wonderful show. Thank you to you and Kim for that amazing presentation today, Tim. Yeah, my pleasure. I just, I love doing this. This is my favorite thing that we do. And, uh, and it just kind of grows and gets better, you know, over the years. It's really fun. Um, so I'm glad. And, you know, you've been, I think you've watched off and on from the very start. So um, it's cool to see you. I think this is the first time I've actually seen you, though. I know. I, I didn't. I thought I had a camera in my monitor for a long time, uh -huh. and I didn't. <laughs> so that was apparently the problem. But uh, we're, we're working on my technical abilities. Very good. Well, it looks great. So, uh, so what do you have that you'd like to share? Um, this is. Um, in response to the prompt and it's I guess it's loosely in response to it so it's um, just a weird little thing um, I think I sent you a copy too I don't know yeah I have it up for everybody at home so go ahead oh, okay yeah. yeah so I don't know it's kind of crazy but I thought I'd like to join the party today <laughs> so I'm glad you did okay so are we ready yeah Maybe. go ahead mm -hmm. I used to have it's called, I used to have a people-pleasing problem, but now I am a lover of dead flowers. The live ones, lush and lovely, lend themselves so quickly to demise. Heads bent, seeds spent, sepia, pastel, and somewhat crispy, another way of being that's forever. Pressed for time, I'm straining at mortality as though it can be teased and wrestled with and charmed. But death won't bite my bullet or allow me to evade the drooping heads and limping leaves and murky waters run to dry. So I resign myself to cherish the preserved post-specimen, more fabulous than ever, the silent skeleton of what has been parched stem and frosted time. Oh, that was great. I love the, the, the strangeness of it. That was a really good poem. Thanks very much for sharing that. Oh, thanks for having me on. Thank you, everybody, for your wonderful work. Yeah, thanks, Kathy. Okay, let's go to um, let's go to Richard Westheimer. Hey, Dick, how are you doing today? Good morning, Tim. Sounds like you had a great but exhausting trip. <laughs> yeah, with two kids, you know, they're seven and eleven, so it's it's mostly just about spending time with your family, which is just great. And then you get back to work and I, you know, I don't want to work, but there's so much work to do because I haven't been doing it for five days. Oh my goodness. What a, what a, what a, what a pile up. Uh, do we have time for two or just one today? Um, I think we could do two. We have, let's see, there's, yeah, there's plenty of time because me and Megan didn't have poems and uh, I'm not in any rush. So yeah, feel free to do two. Okay. I'll, I'll start with my prompt poem. It's shorter. Um, it's called, I Was Wrong About What Made the Cool Kids Cool. Okay, let me, uh, okay, here we go. Go ahead. Uh, 
And, you know, one, one, one of those surprising poems that you give a prompt and all of a sudden the time machine starts working. So here we go. I was wrong about what made the cool kids cool. Recess sucked. Picked last. Sucked. Knocked down, left out, looking in. My back to the fence. Sucked. The cool kids only played tag if I was it. When it came to baseball, I plotted parabolas, the arc of balls I couldn't catch where x equals minus y squared, where x equals where I should have been when the ball came down, where all the guys would gather round and, I, uh, and I'd grin so big it hurt. But I never found my way to x except on graph paper after school, which is not cool. Klutzes aren't cool. Losers aren't cool. Only winners. So that day when Mr. Wallenhopped, who the cool kids called Fat Jolly Wally, timed us in the 50, and I clocked a six flat, made the grade school track team, then won the meet, no one clapped me on the back. Only the laws of physics and maths and alphabetic male bonding order remained, and I was left to solve for why in more than two dimensions. Uh, very interesting turn that poem. Yeah, thanks for thanks for sharing that, Dick. And definitely reminds me of some of my high school <laughs> high school experience too. Um, yeah, thanks for sharing that. And then the other one you wanted to share was a. a um, I don't mean to make fun of Ted Cruz, I, or yeah, I don't mean to excuse Ted Cruz. Okay, yeah, and so this was a I, yeah, this was a, one of the articles um, that somebody wrote about that I hadn't heard about at all. So Ted Cruz, um, explain what it's about. Yeah, so, I mean, it was just a little snippet of Ted Cruz, for some reason, being in Montana and being an entitled prick at the airport counter and, and then saying to the person who said he couldn't get on his plane because he was late, do you know who I am? Yeah, I, I just, it, it seems like that, I saw the video, and uh, which was in the link that you included, and it was one of those things where I thought that would be like big news because it's so, it just shows, you know, politicians for what they are, and yeah. uh and you'd think that would be more of just a, I don't know, like, like you know, fodder for political, you know, pointing out how crappy he is. But, yeah, but it wasn't I think, really used. I think so. it's probably, uh, you know, he probably scores points with the certain people mm -hmm. who, who think that alpha-ness is. Yeah, is that's weird. a good point. I, I didn't really, I didn't see it that way. But yeah, yeah, that could be. Yeah, well, anyway, when I heard him say, do you know uh, who I am, I was thinking, this goes back to one of Kim's poems, like, that's really a good question hmm. um, that you might end up asking someone. So I don't mean to excuse Ted Cruz. But the last time I said, do you know who I am? I was so high, I really didn't know. I asked my buddy Dwight, you are Dicky, definitely Dicky. He spun around a drunk, wild-eyed ballerina and said, but I am so fucked up, man. I just don't know. He spilled to the ground, sat lotus posed, cupped the word do in his upturned palms. Do, he crooned, do like a mantra, do, do such a far out word. He exhaled hard and do puffed into dust. Next, he held the word you between his thumb and forefinger. You shone like a blue gemstone. As he peered into it, I saw his eye bright as the snow moon and cried. I saw right through that jewel, like it was a Nicene icon, only the sacred image I saw was my beautiful friend, older, his Saturn-wide smile pinched. 
a vision of how he'd married how he'd married Rose, how she'd unraveled, saw spirits, was an off-leash Doberman about the littlest things, a missing snippet of paper, a harsh word spoken years before, a star concealed behind clouds. She'd walk off in the night, find her way to an all-night cash and carry. Under the buzzing blue lights, she'd sob, beseech the weary shift worker, do you know who I am? My buddy would come and get her at 3 a.m., coax her home to the couch where she'd sit picking at threads. She'd light all the candles in the house, knock some over as she stripped naked and came on to her man, all sweet skin and libido. My buddy looked back at me through the same lysergic acid-etched lens, saw a gauzy future, me living a perfect life with a perfect life, wife and our perfect kids. So a few years later, when his Rosie really did come undone, Dwight didn't tell me. He just fell for my life. He changed his phone number, pulled the blinds tight. And though I wrote, I never stopped by. Yeah. After his kids had grown and left home, he finally called. We met for coffee. He told me of the lunacy, said the crazy was half magic, that Rose was a shaman whose roots communed with oaks that she convinced crocuses to bloom in autumn, bought tea, brought tea in china cups to old women living under bridges, spoke truth with cats and dogs. Other times she'd run into the woods, her skimpy robe, robe snagging on brambles. She'd be gone till morning or the next. She'd curse their kids and hitchhike to dive bars in Indiana, sleep on restroom floors, not call for weeks, finally come home and tear her hair into ragged wads and stuff it down the drains. He looked up from his still full mug, his hands cupping it as if it were still warm, said, now, Dickie, you know who I am. 50 years later, he's the only one who still calls me Dickie. So when Ted Cruz stood at the ticket window in Bozeman and demanded, do you know who I am? I imagine he is ravaged like Rose, his life shattered, a mirror so fractured he can't see himself in it, forgets who he is, is desperate to know, asks anyone, anyone, anyone who may be able to help. Yeah, great poem. Thanks so much for sharing that, Dick. Really, uh, you know, where you go with that is so, uh, you know, you can see that the storytelling generating out of it. Uh, good stuff as always. Well, it's it's the, po it's the poem that generates the story, right? It, yeah, yeah it is. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for sharing it with us. It's, it's yeah. just always such a pleasure. Yeah, thanks. Bye. Bye. Um, let's go back to uh, Jackie McManus. Hi. Hey, Jackie. <laughs> How you doing? Oh, I have I have to follow Dick, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> that was excellent. <clears throat> so, uh, so I have your poem here. Um, what do you? Uh, is there anything you want to say about it before you review it? Um, no. Okay, this is Moby Dick and Trail Mix. Go ahead whenever you're ready. <clears throat> Excuse me. Moby Dick and Trail Mix. I found the book in my father's office. It's spine black from the house fire twenty years ago. He had worked construction all his life, quit school at 14. Now, 60 years later, I find his annotations in the margins of Moby Dick. I thought he liked Montana history, trout fishing, hunting, cribbage, not whales, not poetic meanderings or recipes for clam chowder. 
I sat in the grease-stained chair of his office and wondered, had I known him? That white whale lymphoma usurped his identity, and like Melville's editor, I longed to ask, did it have to be a whale? And had this been his Bible all these years? After he died, what was left was not how much he knew about this or that, not the faces of friends at his funeral, not even what he yearned for, but only the relief of the land where his hands and feet had tread and the implausibility of this folded piece of paper found in the book, a recipe for trail mix, his handwriting slanted so far to the right, it became a part of the story. Oh, I love that ending. Great poem, Moby Dick and Trail Mix. Thanks for sharing that, Jackie. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad glad you could be on and, and share a poem. And um, and you have a poem in the current issue of Rattle. Um, and I don't. Do you have any books out? Um, I do. I have. Uh, I self-published my first book, The Earth Mover's Daughter, and then Finishing Mind Press published my second book related to Loon, our first year teacher in Tulixac, Alaska. Oh, so. very cool. Yeah. Well, excellent. Well, I'm so glad you could join and share that. Thanks. Thanks, Jackie. Well, thank you. Yeah. Okay, let's go uh, to, let's see, let's go to Guy Chambers. Hi, Tim. Hey, Guy, how are you doing today? Good, good, good. Yeah, like we were talking there, even with Ken earlier about those poems, like getting the right meaning, but to me, you write a poem, and I just, you know, if, if somebody else reads it and takes it somewhere else, to me, that's great. Mm-hmm. That's why I like writing a lot of concrete poems, so... Like I said, it's like my book's called Flying Kites in, in the Moonlight. Just take a poem, throw it up in the air, and wherever you get out of it, just let it be. That's what you want. So, Excellent. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Okay, I got two short ones here. Kind of a prompt, kind of a general about the prompt here. The first one I call To a Silence. <clears throat> to a Silence, Grace Ghosts Talk Without a Voice In a Body In Emotion A Past Touch an empty comfort. Look into the mirror, full of faces, staring over and over again. Can't see oneself. Let it go. Didn't mean it to be. Turn away in a body, in emotion. Forgive the silence. Find one's reflection in the mirror. You're only human. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, guy. Then you had another one too. Yeah, the other one's called Old Billboard. Old Billboard on the side of the road, faded, shaded, speechless. But the story's told. Walk a little while with nothing. The forgiven footsteps linger behind. Questions gathering in the palm of the hand. Lay down, breathing. Close eyes. Didn't uphold bridges. Things just slipped away. Didn't read the rooted catchwords written on a sign. Now walking on an empty road, barefooted and long-winded, wondering what I did wrong. Excellent. Yeah, Thank thanks so much for sharing that. Guy. Two, two good poems. I appreciate it. To a silence and uh, an old billboard and i love that uh yeah, forgive the silence finds one's reflection in the mirror thanks thanks guy yeah thank you okay let's go to uh sean who lee hello hey sean who how you doing good thank you so much i didn't know i would i was able to send the 
um, the poem successfully or not. Uh, so you did. I have it right here. A psycho killer. Oh, um, yeah. Your video is not on. I don't know if you want to turn that on or not. Um, just uh, to let you know. <laughs> no, not today. Okay. Yeah, no problem at all. So, so explain uh, explain this poem, a psycho killer. What what's that about? Oh, so this is a prompt, mm-hmm. and uh, this is in the uh, in the form of abecedarius. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I see it there. Yeah, an abecedarian, uh, which is, of course, for people who can't see the poem. Um, that's the first letter of each line goes down the alphabet. So it's going to be a twenty-six line poem, and a psycho killer is the first. I guess that's the first one. So it's a twenty-five line poem. Okay. Um, so psycho killer. Bobby was my psycho killer. Bobby was my psycho boyfriend. Bobby's psycho boyfriend created tons of life headaches for me. A rocket scientist who designed fancy sensors and flew on ER2 and WB57. But in real life, Bobby was a fucking liar, a world-class giant liar. We met in the NASA hangar in Houston. He was lanky and funny. I was short and ignorant. I was 30 years old. I was ready to jump into a relationship and have a baby. ASAP. Kidding? No. Biological clock. Ticking. We started a long-distance relationship between Colorado and Massachusetts. Bobby was committed. As soon as I noticed, Bobby already moved to Boulder, leaving his old wife, Barbara, and the nine-year-old, Chris, his precious boy in Boston. But everything quickly became rotten. We fought all the time, really, for everything. Why do you behave so suspiciously? Why do you disappear suddenly, even on Thanksgiving and Christmas? Bobby gave me this ugly little ring when I said Stephanie on Valentine's Day. We planned an intimate wedding on the 3rd of April on his birthday. As I had expected, Bobby evaporated on April 1st day. Yesterday, six years later, I received a letter with a Boston zip code from Barbara, Bobby's ex, current and the only wife. Oh, thanks for sharing that, Shanhu. Great storytelling through that abecedarian form. Um, and I'm always, I always look at the last few lines where it gets really tricky with the X, Y, Z. You did that great. Thanks for sharing that, Shanhu. Thank you, Tim. Yeah, take care. Hopefully you share again soon. Bye. Bye. Okay, and now let's go to um, um, Potter King Badger O'Donohue. Hello, Tim. Hey, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm enjoying the show. Thanks very much. Yeah, yeah. Always my pleasure. Always to have you come in from Ireland. Um, and uh, what do you have that you would like to share? Is it possible to, to read two, Tim? Yeah, for sure. Uh, because the first one I wrote was a, a, a eulogy to a po- poet I'd, I'd never met. And um, it got published in The Shop, which is my was my favourite Irish magazine. And then I met the poet, mm-hmm. and they were awful. Oh, really? I, I, I rewrote the poem, and it got published in Abridged. Oh, but then uh, the shop folded, or the shop closed up, and, but over the years, they compiled all the 
poems and then they did a huge anthology and I was desperate to get into it and I did get into it but I chose that poem that I now hate <laughs> so it's it's cruel so I'll, I'll read you the the start because it goes full circle this this is me in love with this poet that I've never met and it's called um, a poem for nobody who used to be that's that's the anthology, by the way. If, if anybody could get a copy, I highly recommend it. Um, did you um, send? Did you send this one in? Oh, I no, I sent the new one in, which gotcha. is where I've met them, and things have gone horribly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we'll just listen then. Okay, a poem for nobody who used to be. There have only been three people I've been curious to meet: Gershwin, Anna Karenina, and you. You might find that surprising. George died in 1937, 51 years before I was born. And Anna belongs only in Leo's head or on the shelf. What kind of existence is that? What kind of spark? Now there's only you. And I hope we never meet. But if inevitably we do, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I am disappointed. It doesn't matter if we have nothing to say. It doesn't matter if an awkward chasm of embarrassment opens up and swallows us if my hand were to brush yours. It doesn't mean a thing. It doesn't mean a thing if you stifle yawns and check the clock one time too many, or we do our best to hide mutual and instant indifference. I don't care if we pull up a chair and have a drink but remain well-meaning strangers on different trains in totally opposite directions. It doesn't matter a jot. What really matters is that I already know you. I've glimpsed you, found you, felt you in your words, in your poems and in my dreams. So that, that was me hook, line and sinker. And, and then I met them <laughs> or had several encounters and got anyway, it matters. Oh, yes, it matters. Jesus, how wrong. I'll tell you. As wrong as using a pickaxe as a toothpick or cleaning the moats from our eyes with your razor blade, your lauded laden plank, as wrong as sisters sleeping with their brothers in their mother's bed as your father fucks the dog next door. I saw an inch of you and measured a canyon. I touched poison nettles and foolishly felt velvet. It does matter. Every syllable, every nuance from the line matters, but nothing as to the real you of I. You took a triple jump, you wonderful you, there on a stage or down dirty among the in crowd, wearing lies as truth, badges on lapels of fake wings, angel of the poetry world, your facade heaven, the purest hell. Poet, peddling poems like drugs, feeding your bleeding ego, making it as fat as a banker's wad. The one trick in your book is you. Frying fish like Murdoch's advice, everything all yours for the taking, an edifice of self line by lie by line, sell, sell, sell out, canard hero, brick by brick cemented with hypocrisy, by the shovel, by the yard, dreams, words, revolutions, 
all plastic grist to the toxic, rotten mill. Wow. That was great. That was, I didn't want to take so much pleasure in how much fun that was, but that was really fun. Thanks for sharing that, Butter. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, okay, let's see. So I think, I think that is going to be uh, it for the uh, open lines on Zoom. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. You're going to go, you're going to do a few more poems over on uh, on the main stream. So, if, so everybody here on Zoom, I'm just going to say goodbye to you and uh, check and go back to where you were if you want to watch the very end of the show. We'll, we'll end. Actually, I guess I'll leave the meeting up in case anybody wants to pop in at the last minute. But uh, but I've got a few poems that people wanted me to share that I will share. So um, here we go. Let's see. So this is a Ted Guevara's poem. Um, and he's got a photo of, oh, this is a great photo. Um, okay. So this is a great photo of um, the, uh, what do they call that? The, um, see, I can't remember words. You know, the, the, the Cirque du Soleil uh, for people watching at home. So Ted included a photo of that. And here's Ted's poem, uh, Lockfield Gardens. Lockfield Gardens is a strip mall where an Ethiopian restaurant is. I knew some people there as friends, and I found it as a place where... Uh, to take someone special. Right next to it was a martial arts place where I took lessons for about six months, a quarter mile away in the same compound. The Indianapolis VA hospital stood. I worked there as a lab assistant uh, for six years. So here's Lockfield Gardens. Next to the Ethiopians, Sensei Myers teaches purity, balance, and self-defense. Next to the Ethiopians, purity is simplified, to which Amen is lengthened to never act to achieve selfish ends. Next to Ethiopians, these selfless ends are framed and hung on a padded wall. Next to the Ethiopians, walls are not really necessary except for physicality. Next to the Ethiopians, necessity and the physical self mesh like trees. Next to the Ethiopians, um, I see a lilac tree growing from a pot and the guard and the gladness in me upon smelling it elsewhere makes the balance of furniture in this, my dojo. Next to the Ethiopians, she doesn't quite see this. Next to the Ethiopians, her arms are folded. She sits trembling, and I do the same. Next to the Ethiopians, I am looking at her in a different background. Next to the Ethiopians, she smells like the flower above the fine cooking, and I say, we're just here to eat. Next to the Ethiopians, the length of my make-believe I don't really see as lying. Great poem. Thanks so much for sharing that, Ted. It's always a pleasure to, uh, to share your work. There was Lockfield Gardens by Ted Bernal Guevara. And here's a poem uh, from Anne Deaton. I think this is the last one we have to share that somebody sent in. i got to get going in a minute anyway, but this will be the last one. Um, Anne Deaton has TV eyewitness in two-part disharmony. So let's do this one, too. Um, TV eyewitness in two-part disharmony. One, my mouth is horrified dry, my eyes agony red, my arms outstretched and yearning to hold betrayed infants, ignorant of the ignorance they have been born into. My booted feet in fury kick the chaos. My head swells in determined defiance. My brain scrambles for reasons, and yet, and yet, my legs grow weak because I am unsure. Unsure of my courage to enter the battle. Unsure that I know how to be Ukrainian. I saw Job today. No one escapes his wailing. 
He's searching for justice, gathering the wheat beneath massive debris and devastation. I heard Job today pleading his case with the Almighty for righteousness, for exhausted men, women, and children bewildered by the ruined fruit of their lives and labor. I abandoned Job today, no longer able to keep his faith, and yet, and yet, human courage at every turn, human kindness where least expected, rise to prove his case, that out of darkness hope rises. Excellent message to be the last poem. Thanks so much for sharing that. That was Ann Deaton with TV Eyewitness in two-part disharmony. And um, I think that is going to be all for... um, for this, so let's uh, let's do the Saiku really quick. And this was my Saiku for the week. This was the story that caught my eye. And I did, even though I didn't get to write a whole poem, I did get to write a Saiku. And this story is from the American College of Cardiology. And uh, it says here, um, Good news for coffee lovers. Daily coffee may benefit the heart. Drinking two to three cups a day was associated with the greatest heart benefits. And the interesting they found in this article is that... Um, that the benefit was pretty large as far as reducing heart attacks and strokes and things like that if you consumed coffee. It was a very high-powered study looking at surveys and, uh, over 10 years. And the interesting thing was that, you know, the caffeine is what we thought was like the important chemical, but decaffeinated coffee had the same effect. And there's actually 100 different compounds that are biologically active in coffee, and we don't know which ones are beneficial, but apparently it's not the caffeine. It's something else in coffee that's helpful. So, um, so, so cheers to coffee. I have my coffee cup here with me every time we do one of these shows, of course, and I try to drink as much as I can. And, uh, and, and, uh, Mary Lisa has it too over there on the zoom. And, um, yeah. And so here is a Saiku really quick about this. Um, here we go. Morning light reflecting on the dark coffee. Morning light reflecting on the dark coffee. That is your Saiku for today, and that is the show for today. Thanks, everybody, as always, for joining me. Next week's prompt on the Rattlecast is going to be this right here. Kind of appropriate. Write a poem about food or drinks. You can write your own coffee poem if you want, or you can write about anything else, any kind of food or drink. Very simple prompt. Just write about some kind of food or drink. That should be interesting to see what everybody writes about. Um, I always like the the prompts that lead you somewhere. Those always make it much more easy for me. Um, and so that is the prompt for this week. Write a poem about food or drink. Next week's guest on the Rattlecast is going to be Elizabeth Johnston Ambrose, the author of our uh, chapbook that just came out with a spring issue, Imago Dai. Uh, Elizabeth Johnston Ambrose, um, you know, she was also a finalist for the Rattle Poetry Prize this year. So an excellent poet that, that we only just started publishing. Um, but she uh, is from my hometown, Rochester, New York. So it'll be, it'll be good to talk to that, talk to her about that in her new chapbook, Imago Dei, which everybody loves that all subscribers have right now. If you don't have a copy of this chapbook, you can, of course, subscribe, and it comes with your subscription. So um, go to rattle.com and subscribe if you would like. Um, and in the meantime, hope you have a great week, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye. Goodbye.